Hey, I think it's me. Um, I'm about to uh, give a lesson about the evils of tribalism, but I have to start by saying how um, happy I am for my own tribe of nerdy Mormons. Um, I was not quite prepared for how I would feel seeing all your names and some of your beloved faces popping up on my screen. Anyway, I'm glad you're here, although I really wish you had something better to do. Um, uh, as Chris said, uh, although few of my ideas are original, I am entirely responsible for the ways in which I will misunderstand and mangle other smarter people's ideas. Um, my opinions are not the fault of dialogue or anyone else. Um, it's just me. Um, since no one's actually here in the room with me, you can't stop me from beginning with a text that isn't in the week's assignment. Um, so we're going to start with the book of Jonah. It has been on my mind a lot in the past few weeks, as everyone has become a prophet or at least a prognosticator of various sorts of physical, financial, or psychic doom. Um, I've been about how Jonah did that. We know the first part of his story well, how he was commanded to go to Nineveh, didn't want to, was caught in the storm, swallowed by a fish, spat out to try again. Um, but it's the second part of the story I want to pay attention to today. We often don't uh, talk too much about what happened after he gets to Nineveh. So he did some very low-key preaching, apparently taken care of in a single dependent clause of a single verse. He yeah. just says... It was Christian Hagelin, who used to be the editor of Dialogue. Um, he just says that God is going to destroy Nineveh in 40 days and tells the people to repent. And he's unprepared for what happens, which is that they do. Uh, the king says, okay, uh, he puts on sackcloth and ashes and tells all the people to repent, and they do. And God decides not to destroy the city. And Jonah is mad. <laughs> he's kind of a diva about it. He's so mad, he says he wants to die. And God's response is pretty funny. Um, in uh, verse 4 of chapter 4, he says, Doest thou well to be angry? Like, really? <laughs> Seriously? Um, and Jonah goes off and sulks some more. Um, he goes out to the city, to, or outside of the city, to watch and see. I think he's still maybe hoping a little bit that it's going to be destroyed after all. Um, and he builds himself a little shelter. And God causes a vine to grow up around the shelter to, um, to keep him cool. And then, in the night, God um, creates a worm to... Uh, eat the vine so that it withers. And Jonah's mad again and says again that he wants to die. And God asks again, doest thou well to be angry? And this time Jonah says, yes, yes. As a matter of fact, this is a perfectly reasonable response. I'm right to be mad. And, and God sort of gently remonstrates with him and says, look, you're mad because of that vine that you didn't even do anything to cultivate or tend. And I made the people of Nineveh and all the animals and people that are in that city, and I've tended to them carefully, and I love them. And, you know, can you see how I would be sad if they were destroyed? And that's it. That's the end of the book. We don't know how Jonah responded or where he went, whether he, um, you know, got another profiting gig. Um, we just don't know. But that's the end, is God saying, I love these people. I love all of them, and I would be sad if anything happened to them. Um, I think there are some useful things in there that we'll all need to remember 
in the coming days and months as our various prognostications turn out to be mistaken in one way or another. And we are tempted to love being right more than we love God or his children. I think there might also be things in there that are related to the second part of King Benjamin's address, which is the text for today's lesson. One of the things that seems to distress Jonah the most is that people don't get what they deserve. Um, he was willing to let the sailors throw him overboard because he saw that the storm was God's just punishment of him. Like he, he appreciates getting what he deserves or he may not like it, but he um, acknowledges it. And yet somehow he doesn't recognize the parallel between his own plea for forgiveness from inside of the fish and the mercy he was granted and the mercy that is granted the people of Nineveh. Pleading for mercy is where we meet the Nephites listening to Benjamin's speech at the opening of the reading for today. So take a look at Mosiah 4, 1 through 3. Um, and I guess I'll read it because I can't call on any of you to. Uh, and now it came to pass that when King Benjamin had made an end of speaking the words which had been delivered unto him by the angel of the Lord, that he cast his eyes round about on the multitude, and behold, they had fallen to the earth, for the fear of the Lord had come upon them. And they had viewed themselves in their own carnal state, even less than the dust of the earth. And they all cried aloud with one voice, saying, Oh, have mercy, and apply the atoning blood of, Jesus, of Christ, that we may receive forgiveness of our sins, and our hearts may be purified. For we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who created heaven and earth and all things, who shall come down among the children of men. And it came to pass that after they had spoken these words, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and they were filled with joy, having received a remission of their sins and having peace of conscience, because of the exceeding faith which they had had in Jesus Christ, who should come, according to the words which King Benjamin had spoken unto them. Um, there's a lot going on in these verses, but I want to draw attention to just a couple of things. First is all the seeing that's going on. King Benjamin casts his eyes and sees the people seeing themselves, viewing themselves. There's also a behold in there addressed to the reader. Uh, one of my little brothers went through a brief glorious phase where in our family scripture reading, he would read every instance of behold with about 10 ex exclamation marks. So he'd be in the middle of the sentence and go, behold! Um, so I'm especially attuned to those. And sometimes they're uh, just rhetorical, but I think here they're important. There are all these different synonyms for seeing. Um, seeing clearly and self-consciously seems to be the first step towards forgiveness. Um, what kind of seeing? What kind of clarity? It's not really about their actions, as far as I can tell. It's not the scary movie of our misdeeds that our seminary teacher told us would be shown on a rooftop at the second coming. Um, it's something more about status, about ontology, um, that is, it's much more about what human beings are than about what these particular people have done. Um, besides seeing, they speak. They cry aloud with one voice. Um, it's hard to know what this means. Anyone who's ever tried to lead a group of children reciting a scripture in primary will question whether it's physically possible that all of these people said the exact same words at the same time. But however it works, there seems to be an emphasis on verbally confessing sin and seeking absolution, and in doing so together. Um, it's not part of any Latter-day Saint liturgies, but a confession of sins, a collective confession, is part of a lot of Protestant church services. And when I've participated in these, I've often found the confession um, and the plea for forgiveness quite moving. There's something 
potent in simply the human act of voicing contrition. Um, and there seems to have been power here too. It said, the text says, after they had spoken these words, sort of as a direct follow on as near as we can tell, the spirit came upon them, they were filled with joy, they received remission of their sins and peace of conscience, all because of their faith. Um, I'm not sure how you learned it, but I do not see all of the many R's of repentance in this process. Um, they recognize something, so there's one, their sinfulness, maybe more their nothingness. They felt something like remorse or maybe regret, I can't remember. Um, but that's it, there's no restitution or resolve or any of those other R's. I, I think I had one um, youth teacher who came up with at least seven R's and I do not see very many of them here. Um, Later in verse 10, Benjamin says they must repent of their sins and forsake them and humble themselves before God and ask in sincerity of heart that he would forgive you. But what do we make of this remission of sin that has already happened? Um, it's a, a quicker process of repentance than we usually think about it. Um, so what's, what's going on? Um, this is the moment when I would naturally turn to my class for comments. And I've realized in preparing to have um, not very many comments in, in this um, setting, how much I depended on my class. So shout out to all my Belmont people. Um, I miss you um, all the time, but especially right now. Um, so are these people receiving individual forgiveness? Are they being punished and forgiven collectively? Are they getting off easy? Is anyone getting what they deserve? Um, I'm hoping maybe this is a point where people might have comments. So Chris, if there are any that you want to flag for me right now, do. If not, I'll watch for them in a couple minutes. But, but please do feel free to type comments into the chat function and Chris will um, pull some of them up for me because I can't read and talk and chew gum at the same time. Um, so um, Chris, just break in anytime if, if you think you should. Um, let's keep reading a little in the meantime. Uh, verses, verse five, chapter four, verse five and six. Well, actually five through 10, I'm gonna read a long chunk. Christine, uh, yes. we're, we're good so far. Okay. Um, I was I was muted when I didn't think I was. We're good so far. Keep going. Uh, okay. Uh, but I'll break in when we have. Uh, um, we're all trying to keep up with you. So. <laughs> okay. Oh. All right. So here's um, chapter four, verse five. For behold, if the knowledge of the goodness of God at this time has awakened you to a sense of your nothingness and your worthless and fallen state. I say unto you, if you have come to a knowledge of the goodness of God and his matchless power and wisdom and his patience and his long suffering towards the children of men, and also the atonement which has been prepared from the foundation of the world, that thereby salvation might come to him that should put his trust in the Lord, and should be diligent in keeping his commandments and continue in the faith even to the end of his life, I mean the life of the mortal body. I say that this is the man who receiveth salvation through the atonement which was prepared from the foundation of the world. And this is the means whereby salvation cometh. There is none other salvation save this which hath been spoken of. Neither are there any conditions whereby man can be saved except the conditions which I have told you. 
believe in God, believe that he is, that he created all things, both in heaven and in earth. Believe that he has all wisdom and all power, both in heaven and in earth. Believe that man doth not comprehend all the things which the Lord can comprehend. And again, believe that you must repent of your sins and forsake them and humble yourselves before God and ask in sincerity of heart that he would forgive you. And now if you believe all these things, see that you do them. Um, and there finally in verse 10 is something that um, task-oriented Latter-day Saints can grab a hold of. Um, if you believe these things, see that you do them. And yet, if you go back through the list, um, there, there's no list of things to do. Um, it's very disconcerting. Most of the actions, or many of the actions, um, are acts of will, of um, volition, or an act of the mind, an act of believing. There's um, the words belief, knowledge, comprehension, trust, ask in sincerity of heart. I started trying last night to make a list of which things were men mental actions and which were things that can do with the body. And it was a lot harder to find commandments about doing. There's be diligent in his commandment in keeping his commandments, but no iteration of those commandments. Um, the first ethical prescriptions we get are in verses 12 and 13, and they are phrased not as commandments, but as the natural and maybe even inevitable consequence of conversion. It says um, in verse 12, Behold, I say unto you that if you do this, do this, you shall always rejoice and be filled with the love of God and always retain a remission of your sins. Oh, come on. And you shall grow in the knowledge of the glory of him that created you, or in the knowledge of that which is just and true. And you will not have a mind to injure one another, but to live peaceably and to render every man according to that which is his due. Um, and you will not suffer your children that they go hungry or naked, or transgress the laws of God and fight and quarrel with one another. This may be my mother's most often quoted scripture and serve the devil who is the master of sin um, when you fight and quarrel. But you will teach them to walk in the ways of truth and soberness. You will teach them to love one another and to serve one another. Um, so I just, I find that the conflation of, of right belief and right action, the, the, the way that they're sort of linked um, both optimistic and puzzling. I, I want to think that if you believe the right thing, of course you will do the right thing. Um, but it doesn't work out that way in my life. I don't know about yours. Um, but there is something about, um, in verse 12, growing in the knowledge of the glory of him that created you and or in the knowledge suggesting an equivalence right in the knowledge of that which is just and true so that somehow the more we understand god's glory um the more we understand what is just um i'm just seeing christine could i break in here yeah there the the questions i'm uh, summarizing a little bit i think the questions i'm seeing have to do with uh group a, a, a group action, a tribe, you, you referred at the beginning to a tribalism, but uh, we, are, we are talking here, we seem to be talking about not individual repentance, but uh, actions by a group, by all of the listeners. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and that's very interesting. What would you, would you talk about that more? Um, how you define the group 
and how that group can act together in a way that is a collective awakening, a collective uh, repentance, what, what that means. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's hard to know here, right? I mean, they're all just sitting around listening to a sermon, so it's not clear exactly what it's going to look like when they take this new understanding out into the world. And we don't actually get to learn a whole lot about um, what it looks like. They have relative peace for several years after this. Um, but, but we don't really know very much. And, and I think that's one of the most interesting um, uh, puzzles in this, in this um, passage is that, that they do seem to be doing things as a group. Um, there's something, they're, they're making covenants as a group. And in fact, we, um, I was trying to think about this, we make a lot of our covenants as a group. And in the temple, um, particularly, if you pay attention to the language, we make our covenants both individually as a, and as a group. It's, it's quite specific and even legalistic in the way that it um, insists on both the individual and the collective um, acceptance of these covenants. Um, I don't really know what to make of that, except that it seems to me to be one of the, the um, difficulties that we are supposed to keep in tension all the time. And maybe I just think that because I've been reading too much Jean England, but I think it also might be true that, that uh, we have to individually repent and we have to collectively make covenants. And those two things are related, but neither one can um, supersede the other. Um, there, there's some interesting questions being raised here about, um, again, uh, about the collective, but, but let me read one uh, or paraphrase at least. The Old Testament is entirely full of collective responsibility, collective repentance, collective relationship with God. Um, we sometimes talk about the, the new covenant or the, or, or the, the New Testament as uh, an individualism, as an individual, but maybe that's not right. And maybe this is a, um, even in the time of King Benjamin, uh, speaking of a possibly a transition from Law of Moses to a new covenant, but still in a collective form, not focused or necessarily limited to an individual covenant. Um, uh, react to yeah. that, I guess. Yeah, I, um, this is something that I probably should have known a long time ago, but the, the place where I learned it is in the um, online and in-person um, insistence of Nate Oman um, on the difference between contract and covenant. Um, it turns out lawyers do actually have useful things to say every once in a while. Um, and, and that is that we often describe the covenants we make with God as contracts, that is, I'll do this, I'll get baptized, I'll remember Jesus, I'll keep the commandments, and in return, God will do X, whatever um, blessing it is we think that we're, that we're contracting with God for. And it's important in, um, in this passage, there's very little of that. Um, keeping the commandments is important and it's part of the covenant, but it is not the covenant. The covenant is one of belonging, that is becoming the children of Christ, becoming part of God's family. 
And, um, I, and I think it's important, and, and that makes more sense out of the group and individual distinction to me than anything else, that what, what we are covenanting is to be part of this family and to be bound together in love and to try to, as we do for our earthly families, hopefully, um, try to wish good and create good for the collective um, rather than for ourselves. But it is a, it's not a contract. There aren't specific terms laid out. There's no, um, you, know, you, you don't get kicked out of a covenant, really. Um, you can transgress its terms uh, and and be cast out, but that always seems to be um, much more a function of people not wanting to belong to the the covenant group anymore and and making choices that affirm affirm that desire rather than necessarily you know you took a rake, therefore you're out. Um, I don't know. Uh, that's how I make sense of some of the collective and individual responsibilities, but it's it's complicated. Um, Jody says it right. Um, I'm just looking at the chat window. The covenant of belonging, of being one, at one meant atonement. Um, okay, I'm gonna go on a little bit, but keep thinking about this because I don't feel that I've definitively answered that question. Um, so, uh, one of the phrases that comes up a lot is uh, remission of sins and retaining a remission of sins. And that also at first seems to be um, contradictory, right? If, you're, if your debt is, is remitted, um, it's, it's canceled. You don't have it anymore. So, how is it that you have to retain this remission of sins? Partly, obviously, it's that um, you're going to sin again. Um, I don't know if any of you remember sort of trying to keep track after you were baptized how long you could go without sinning. Um, I know that I myself uh, hit my brother only about five hours after I was baptized and figured <laughs> it, was all, it was all over. That, that goodness that I'd had for a few minutes was, was gone. Um, so clearly you know, we have to keep doing it because we keep sinning. But I got interested in this notion of remission and where it comes up. Um, one of the, I think, most interesting ways to think about it is to look at the, um, the parallels with the law of the Jubilee in Deuteronomy. So here's, here's how that's, they call it a release rather than a remission. But here's what Deuteronomy and I cut and pasted and didn't say what chapter it is. I think it's chapter 15, but I'm not going to swear it. So um, you might have to trust me. At the end of every seven years, thou shalt make a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor that lendeth aught unto his neighbor shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. For the Lord God blesseth thee as he promised thee. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, but thou shalt not borrow. Thou shalt reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over thee. If there be a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thy heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother, but thou shalt open thy hand wide unto him, and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. And then here's the, the mental part that I think is an obvious parallel with, with Benjamin. 
Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother, and thou givest him not. Um, so just because the Jubilee is coming up and you know that debt isn't going to be good anymore, you can't withhold. Um, thou shalt surely give him, and thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him, because that for this thing the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thy works, and in all thou puttest thy hand unto. Um, and if thy brother, um, an Hebrew man or an Hebrew woman, be sold unto thee and serve thee six years, then in the seventh year thou shalt let him go free from thee. And when thou sendest him out free from thee, thou shalt not let him go away empty. Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock and out of thy floor and out of thy winepress. Out of that wherewith the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give him. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Therefore, I command thee this thing today. So that, that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee, sounds a lot like what Benjamin says to the people in um, verse 20. Um, Behold, even at this time, you've been calling on his name and begging for a remission of your sins. Um, if God who has created you, on whom ye are dependent for your lives and for all that ye have and are, doth grant unto you whatsoever ye ask that is right in faith, oh, then how ye ought to impart of the substance that ye have one to another. So if you believe that God has been merciful to you, then you will in turn be merciful to your children and your neighbors and to the beggar. And that seems to be the most direct and explicit link between belief and action that's made in, in this um, speech. And it's important the passage about assigning blame is important, um, not only because we are likely to always be wrong um, when we assign blame, um, but also because it introduces a division into the people of Christ, right? If you assume that you know why the beggar, that the beggar has brought his fate upon himself, um, as in verse 22 and 23, if, if you make that assumption, then you are presuming that he is somehow different from you in a way that um, that sort of cements your status as as above him and as the one who gives. And what Benjamin is is constantly trying to remind the people is that that status is meaningless in every meaningful way. Um, you're just as you're in just as bad shape. You know, less than a dust is is less than the dust. The beggar may be materially less than the dust, but you are spiritually less than the dust, and that's at least as bad. So, so this, this mental action that, that Benjamin stresses is about maintaining the understanding that we are sisters and brothers, that, that, we, um, that we are all in the same situation with relation to God, and it's not a good or stable one, mostly, that we are children um, dependent on heavenly parents. Um, could I inter interrupt here um, yeah. or just add um, several of us are commenting about the, this relationship that here's one, if sin is to be chained by the consequences of injuring ourselves or others, then to retain the remission is to be empowered to love and heal where we can. And the patience is to accept that some healing will be a longer process. Thank Interesting you. that Benjamin does not say that if you have had this experience, you will lead a life that is individually more holy and consecrated, uh, but that your relationships with your family and your community will be changed. 
Yeah. Um, and and, and let, me, let me add in my own voice, I was impressed last year as we were reading the letters in the New Testament, how many of the, what sound like commandments and instruction and direction, how many of them had to do with how we live together and how we relate to each other as opposed to um, how we individually um, eat or drink or practice or don't in our individual uh, lives. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is the part where I uh, try to show you that I learned something in the years that I was working at Harvard Business School. Um, the, the, diff the, the mistake that Benjamin describes of assuming that the beggar has brought his misery upon himself while um, you deserve everything that you have um, is, is called by management experts a fundamental attribution error. Um, Patrick Healy from Harvard Business School says many cognitive biases affect humans and their everyday actions like confirmation bias and overconfidence. But the most important and troubling and persistent error that pr professionals tend to make in their thinking may be the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error refers to an individual's tendency to attribute another's actions to their character or personality while attributing um, their own behavior to external situational factors outside of their control. In other words, you tend to cut yourself a break while holding others 100% accountable for their actions. For instance, if you've ever chastised a lazy employee for being late to a meeting and then proceeded to make an excuse for being late yourself that same day, you've made the fundamental attribution error. Um, the error that Jonah made uh, was a severe instance of fundamental attribution error. He thought he had earned the shade over him, um, but was unable to believe that the people of Nineveh had escaped destruction by their own efforts of penitence. And, and Benjamin suggests that passing judgment on the beggar is the same sort of um, attribution error. Um, and uh, the reason it's so destructive to Christian community is that it int introduces this division I was talking about, intellectual and spiritual division um, between the rich man and the beggar um, that is as troubling to Benjamin as the material fact of the disparity. And um, But this is important because I think one of the ways we can uh, we who are rich can let ourselves off the hook um, for this is to say that, well, if I just think well of poor people and don't think of them as different than myself, you know, that's the most important thing. And I don't think it's the most important thing. Um, the material fact of disparity is important. The rich man is going to hell for not physically ameliorating the beggar's plight, according to Benjamin. But the intellectual work of getting one's thoughts right is important enough that Benjamin describes um, a way to remain righteous, even if you're not in a position to materially improve the beggar's condition. So in verse 24 and 25, um, he says, again, I say unto the poor who have not and yet have sufficient that you remain from day to day. Um, I mean, all, all you who deny the beggar because you have not, I would that you say in your hearts that I give not because I have not, but if I had, I would give. And now if you say this in your hearts, you remain guiltless, otherwise you're condemned and your condemnation is just for ye covet that which ye have not received. Um, that is the first instance of covet, um, and the only instance, and, but I think it's important um, 
that again, it's partly, it's, it's our mental orientation to riches. And so even if we barely have enough, we're supposed to be thinking about how much we would give if we could. Like our orientation is always supposed to be towards generosity. Um, Uh, I think another way that we like to let ourselves off the hook is to read that as saying, well, right now I'm concentrating on getting enough for myself and then I'll give when I have more, I'll give. And I, I think subtly Benjamin is saying, you can't do that. You have to constantly be thinking about the giving part. You can't, you can't quit thinking about giving just because you don't have what you think is enough yet. Um, Another in verse 26, let's um, look at this. Uh, this is almost the end of this section it says now for the sake of these things, which I've spoken unto you, that is for the sake of retaining a remission of your sins from day to day, that you may walk guiltless before God, I would that you should impart of your substance to the poor, every man according to that which he hath, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and administering to their relief, both spiritually and temporally, according to their wants. Um, and there are two things that are important there. Um, well, there are probably several things, but I'm going to talk about two of them. Um, according to their wants, I, uh, I only heard Jean England speak once. And the only thing I remember from that talk is that he talked about this um, wants. And he made the distinction that it, that it says according to their wants, not according to their needs. And his gloss of that was that knowing what people's needs are requires us to make a judgment. Knowing what their wants are only requires us to respond to them and to what they ask of us. They will tell us what they want and it's our job to give it to them. Um, and I, uh, I think that is an important corrective to uh, the way that we prefer to give, right? Which is to say, well, you know, I've, earned or I've been wise, so I know better than you do what you need, and I'll give you what you need. Um, and we're, we're simply let off the hook for making that judgment. We just don't have to, to do that to try to figure it out. Um, the other thing that's important in that verse um, is retaining a remission of your sins from day to day. That phrase from day to day is even more explicit about the sort of constant nature of this than maybe always would be. Um, it suggests the constancy with, with which we have to work at cultivating this way of thinking and this set of priorities. Um, it is important though, I think, to notice also that Benjamin ends this part of his sermon with an aside about borrowing and returning things uh, neighbor to neighbor. He does not take the final step of suggesting that a Christian community should have things in common. He doesn't say whatever, you know, your neighbor borrowed from you now belongs to him if he needs it. Um, and I, it, I think it's worth comparing that to um, the Christian community that's described in 4th Nephi, where they do take that final structural step um, to have things in common. And I'm going to bracket that for a minute, but 4th Nephi is an important thing to have in the back of our heads. Um, as we finish up looking at, at this passage. Um, so let's turn to chapter five. 
it starts again with a really long group recitation. And um, those of you who have, have pointed out in the comments that you know that earlier one couldn't have worked. Um, this one, I, I find it even more hard to believe that they could have done. It's, a, it's several verses worth. So let me read it. They all cried with one voice saying, yea, we believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us. And also we know of their surety and truth because of the spirit of the Lord omnipotent, which has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. And we ourselves also through the infinite goodness of God and the manifestations of his spirit have great views of that which is to come. And were it expedient, we could prophesy of all things. And it is the faith which we've had on the things which our king has spoken unto us that has brought us, that brought us to this great knowledge, whereby we do rejoice with such exceedingly great joy. And we are willing to enter into a covenant with our God to do his will and to be obedient to his commandments in all things that he shall command us all the remainder of our days, that we may not bring upon ourselves a never-ending torment, as, as has been spoken by the angel, that we may not drink out of the cup of the wrath of God. Um, Again, there's enough going on to spend at least an hour on each of these verses. Um, but I, I just want to suggest that maybe the part about, um, you know, giving credit to the king's speech is something that Benjamin's scribes would have written down whether or not they had heard it. They had reason because of the societal structure that put oh, wait, Benjamin that at the, the top to... Um, to want to attribute things to Benjamin that maybe were not entirely his doing. So just, just something to nag at you in the back of your mind. Um, I also want to take a small um, excursus of, about um, verse 3, um, where it says, we have great views of that which is to come. Um, and I want to just go to a... Um, a talk from Elder Gay in uh, 2018, where he was talking about taking upon us the name of Christ, which is the next, the next part of this. And he, and I think this this verse in, uh, or this passage in chapter three might be the warrant for his talk because he says um, to take upon ourselves the name of Christ means we faithfully strive to see as God sees. How does God see? Joseph Smith said. Quote, while one portion of the human race is judging and condemning the other without mercy, the great parent of the universe, and I'd say great parents of the universe, look upon the whole of the human family with a fatherly care and paternal regard. His love is unfathomable. unfathomable. Um, and then he tells the story of his sister who'd had a, a difficult life. She had never been particularly active in church and she was divorced. And Elder Gay um, uh, confesses, um, acknowledges publicly that he had too often judged his sister in, in, on those terms, that she was inactive in church and divorced. And he says, as, he, as she was dying, he gave her a blessing. As I placed my hands on her head that evening, I received a severe rebuke from the Spirit. I was made acutely aware of her goodness and allowed to see her as God saw her, not as someone who struggled with the gospel and life, but as someone who had had to deal with difficult issues I did not have. I saw her as a magnificent mother who, despite great obstacles, had raised four beautiful, amazing children. I saw her as the friend to our mother, who to watch over and be a companion to her father passed away. During 
my final evening with my sister, I believe God was asking me, can't you see that everyone around you is a sacred being? Brigham Young taught, and this is, this is, I love this. I had not known this Brigham Young quote and I love it. I wish to urge upon the saints to understand men and women as they are and not understand them as you are. How often it is said such a person has done wrong and he cannot be a saint. We hear some swear and lie or break the Sabbath. Do not judge such persons for you do not know the design of the Lord concerning them, rather bear with them. Uh, and then Elder Gay concludes, from the Spirit's rebuke at my sister's bedside, I learned a great lesson that as we see, as he sees, ours will be a double victory, redemption of those we touch and redemption of ourselves. Um, having been identified as a single mother for much of my children's lives, I can attest that it hurts and it does lasting damage to categorize people in this way. My marital status is not and never was the most interesting or important thing about me. And it certainly wasn't the most important thing about my children. But I think in a lot of conversations about us at church, it was the first thing that God said. Um, demography is rarely the most salient information about our fellow saints. And when we slip into seeing the world in those categories, we are, in Brigham's words, understanding people not as they are, but as we are. Um, and betraying the fact that at least in those moments, we do not have great views of what is to come. Um, I think that may be the hardest thing, right? We can't know everyone well. We can't know all that there is to love about each of our fellow saints. It's too hard. There are too many of us. Um, but we're supposed to try. We're supposed to not let um, demography be the big identifier. Um, you know, I'm the lapsed violinist with a big nose, and that is actually more interesting and tells you more about me than um, whether or not I'm married. Um, Okay, I want to look in, um, carefully at the terms of this covenant that they describe um, in, in those, those previous verses. So look again at verses um, 1 through 5 and see what they are. Um, again, it's interesting that it's voiced in the second person. They say we instead of I. I'm sure this is just the scribe emphasizing that everyone did and said the same thing. But again, it's not clear. It's not clear that it would have worked for each person or even each family in their own tent. I think that's the unit that we tend to go to um, as Latter-day Saints often. We think, well, families are the, the covenant. Um, but even though Benjamin sent among the people to hear what they, their response to his sermon, he doesn't, at least not at this moment, record the names of those who make the covenant. He's, there aren't, he's not noting individuals who does it. Um, even if they didn't physically cry aloud with one voice, the fact that they um, are doing this thing in unison as a collective seems important. Um, besides attending to the pronouns, we should look at verb tenses. Um, first, looking backwards, they say, according to the faith that we have had, and then immediately forwards, they promise to be obedient to his commandments in all things that he shall command us. Um, and the future tense is interesting there. This is not a commitment, commitment to a set of known commandments. It's not a list. Um, there's nothing about the records or the plates containing the law of Moses. It's a covenant to be in an ongoing relationship with God so that we will know what it is he commands from day to day. Um, and then King Benjamin's response describes the nature of the relationship, which we already talked about it. They're entering a covenant relationship of belonging to one another. Um, it's worth um, it's worth noting, I, just as an aside, that the spiritually begetting part, becoming the sons and daughters of Christ, uh, doesn't entirely fit with later Mormon theology. 
Um, I think that's because God is gracious and leaves plenty of puzzles for his theologically inclined children to argue about for fun. Um, you um, should feel free to do that, but not today. Um, the two things that I'm interested in about this are the familiar relationship between us and God, um, and that we are to take upon us the name of Christ, which is the exclusive means of salvation, at least for the people who are hearing Benjamin word, Benjamin's words, and presumably for us um, who are reading them. Um, and this is, this exclusivity of Christ's name um, has been in history a dangerous truth. Um, the joy and peace that the followers of Christ feel upon receiving remittance of their sins turns readily to missionary zeal. And this is right, right? If something makes you happy, fills you with joy and peace, um, it's right and fitting to want to share it with the people around you. But the danger is that it's easy to focus on the exclusivity and the potential of other people being damned if they don't understand or accept Christ as you have. Um, this is something that living, growing up in Nashville among evangelical Protestants, um, it was a danger I learned to recognize um, quite readily. Um, here I want to turn briefly back to the opening song. It's a song that was in the first Latter-day Saint hymnal compiled by Emma Smith and in several of the succeeding ones. It was gone by the time um, we got to the blue hymnal that I grew up with, um, which is too bad. I think our cousins in the community of Christ still have it, and I'm jealous because it's really, really fun to sing. And the bass line is the greatest of all time. It's the goat. Um, if I were a bass, I would be really mad. But it's a little bit problematic. Um, and I want to read from a site called The Story Behind the Hymns, which is, um, as far as I can tell, a site published by some evangelicals. They, like Mormons, they don't um, attribute their manuals or their things on their websites to any human beings that wrote them. So I can't tell you exactly who wrote it. But I'm going to just read some of what he said. Well, I'm presuming he it could have been a she um, who wrote this history of the hymn. Um, this hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, is often called the National Anthem of Christendom. The lyrics were written by Edward Perrinet, who was a missionary to India, and the hymn first appeared in the November 1779 issue of the Gospel Magazine, published by the writer of Rock of Ages, who has the best name of all hymn writers, Augustus Toplady. Um, the lyrics have been translated into almost every language in which Christianity is known. Um, Let's see. Yeah, and it's got trumpets. Like, what's not to love? Um, but here's a, a story about someone using the hymn. It says, one of the most dramatic instances of its use was found in the experience of the Reverend E.P. Scott in India. Scott was greatly burdened for a very barbarous, barbarous tribe that his friends had strongly advised him to avoid. He journeyed to where they were putting his trust in God to protect him. Before he reached their tribe, he was accosted and surrounded. He had no weapon of offense or defense. He had only his violin. He closed his eyes and began to play and sing, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, fully anticipating that he would open his eyes in heaven. After a few minutes, he opened his eyes to steal a look, and much to his surprise, they had dropped their spears and were looking at him in awe and curiosity. Later, after welcoming him, him in, he shared with them the glorious story of the gospel and led many of them to the Lord. And then there's another story about a Mormon that um, someone uh, encountered. It says, uh, there's power in the name of Jesus to sustain us. It is Jesus that saves and Jesus that keeps us saved. I am reminded of the story of D.L. Moody who boarded a train. The conductor of the train was a devout Mormon. 
The conductor spent the evening and on up into the night trying to convert Moody to Mormonism. After a lengthy discussion, Mr. Moody told the conductor, there's only two letters difference between my religion and yours. You spell yours D-O, do. I spell mine D-O-N-E, done. Um, I'm not sure exactly what that is supposed to mean. Uh, presumably a slap at Mormon's orientation towards work and our tendency to neglect grace. Um, but I think it's useful for us to see ourselves from the outside. Remember that we aren't always, at least in other people's eyes, the ones with the truth, that we have to be careful to see both ourselves and those we would save as sacred beings. Um, and then here's a last bit of the history of that hymn where the potential violence of exclusivity is laid bare. The doctrinal content of the original eight verses is eschatological. The final day when every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Thank God there will come a day when every tribe and every tongue will fall prostrate before him. Albert Barnes said that to bow the knee is an act expressing homage, submission, or adoration. It means that every person shall acknowledge him as God and admit his right to universal dominion. Um, so this is me now. Um, we can mean well when we insist on the truth of Christ's name. We can be right and still do violence. Um, it's worth remembering that Benjamin, though at the moment of this sermon and perhaps for the rest of his life, is presented as a peaceful farmer, his ascent to power was through serious war. I'm going to borrow a paragraph from Patrick Mason and just read it because he says it perfectly um, about the way that Benjamin and the Nephites came to power in Zarahemla. Uh, quote, Three major efforts marked King Benjamin's reign. First, he led his people in a serious war against the Lamanites in which the Nephites prevailed. At least some of the Lamanite forces were invaders from the land of Nephi, from which Mosiah and his people had fled in order to avoid such conflict. Yet others seem to have been inhabitants in the land of Zarahemla alongside the Mulekites, their ancestors having settled there as part of the scattering of peoples that had occurred in previous centuries. The Nephites' defense against the Lamanite onslaught morphed into an offensive campaign in which all the Lamanites were either killed or expelled from Zarahemla, which the Nephites now claimed as the land of their inheritance. In sum, within the space of only about a generation, Nephites had entered the land of Zarahemla as a minority, asserted their linguistic, religious, and political dominance over the longtime inhabitants, and eradicated the remainder of the native population that either refused to accept their rule or which they deemed to be dangerously unassimilable. This pattern with variations will be familiar to scholars of settler colonialism, particularly as it played out in the modern history of the American West, Canada, South Africa, and Australia. Um, so King Benjamin didn't allow much dissent or um, internal pluralism either. He records that every single person who heard his sermon agreed to the covenant, and maybe they did, but maybe they also knew they had to say so. Um, we all know that the collective voice of the people crying with one voice is pretty potent. Um, those of us who were baptized at eight or began missions reluctantly may know that covenant making is an easily pressured sort of process. Um, and perhaps because of this, neither Benjamin nor his son were able to maintain real peace for more than a few years. Um, there isn't time to do it together, but um, uh, because God also loves his children with a penchant for political theory, um, he leaves them puzzles too, and I would commend to you the work of a comparison between the governing structures of Zarahemla under King Benjamin and his son, and the longer-lived peaceful Christian community described in 4th Nephi. Um, the challenge I want us to take from Benjamin's sermon today is to understand that the, tr the truth that we must know the name by which we are called, and we are commanded to share the love of God, which we have received through our faith in that truth. And that, as Joseph Smith taught, 
The parent of the universe looks upon the whole of the human family with parental care and regard. Uh, Zion, we're told, has no manner of ites, and the story of Benjamin and the rest of the book of Mosiah is in part a demonstration that as long as we are still seeing the world in demographic categories, especially racialized ones, we cannot make Zarahemla into Zion. Just driving out the Lamanites and the dissenters is insufficient. And I think maybe individual conversion is also in, insufficient. We have to build righteous structures too. Benjamin was a righteous king, but he remained a king and relied on the individual goodness of his followers to succor the poor and the beggar. It may be that our individual goodness just isn't enough for that. I know mine isn't most of the time. Benjamin's address teaches us a lot about getting our own hearts right, but also about how hard it is to rely on our own hearts. We make covenants together, not because God can't succor us individually, but because we cannot comprehend all that God does, and we can't succor each other in the way that he requires us to in the name of Christ, without building communities that teach us from day to day what justice looks like. I'm convinced that the Book of Mormon gives us ways to understand how to build those communities, how to recognize where we fail, how to repent, and how to invoke God's love and power to help us do better and be better day by day, from day to day. Um, I chose for a closing song another eschatological hymn from Emma's book. This one is more wistful than triumphant, and it reminds us not only of the crown Jesus will wear, but of the cross that he bore and in whose behalf. It reminds us of dust, and also of the potential of its transformation into soil that will bear abundance. All of these possibilities are part of the heritage of our faith. Benjamin was not perfect, but he did know how to compose a sermon, so I'm going to steal his ending. I would that you should be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works, that Christ, the Lord God omnipotent, may seal you his, that you may be brought to heaven, that you may have everlasting salvation and eternal life, through the wisdom and power and justice and mercy of him who created all things in heaven and earth, who is God above all. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Christine. And as we heard, we will now hear, uh, gotta read it, the glorious day is rolling on. And then uh, Marnie Asplund Campbell will offer a benediction. Marnie and her husband, Craig, co-teach the four and five-year-old primary class in the Thornton Creek Ward in the Seattle North Stake. She's also a middle school principal and occasionally the church organist. Uh, and now the glorious day is rolling on where uh, the words should be on your screen and are important. Thank you. Our dear God, we are so grateful, we really are, and thank you for, um, for another day on this earth. Um, thank you for whatever means we have to, um, to come together um, and um, make meaning out of our experience and to share that meaning. Thank you for whatever measure of love we have in our lives. Thank you for scriptures, for sacred words, holy words, beautiful words, and poetry and music that um, give us comfort, that challenge us, that give us inspiration, that help us question ourselves. Help us to uh, be forgiven and to offer forgiveness constantly, um, to, to have our spirits um, 
live in a, in a state of, of wonder and awareness and constant renewal. Help us to be aware of the divinity of each and every person. Help us to celebrate and to acknowledge that and, and in ourselves as well. And we ask you to please bless those who are suffering in every possible way. To remember um, uh, the virus of poverty and violence and injustice and inequity and to actively address those things in whatever way we are able to do so. Uh, and we actually collectively ask that you please bless national and state and worldwide leaders um, to heal whatever is broken in their hearts and minds that they might make decisions that support the health and well-being and dignity and um, rights of every single person. Bless, bless them and um, bless each one of us to carry forth a message of love uh, in the days and weeks to come. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. This has been the Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study on April 26th. We invite you all to join us again next week when we will hear from Ronnie Joe Draper uh, and studying together Mosiah 11 through 17.